Welcome back to the Alexander Schmidt Podcast, episode 54, Westworld Season 2, Episode 5. We are back with Mr. Babcock. Hello, Mr. Babcock. How are you? Hello, Mr. Schmidt. How are you? I'm fine. I'm doing very well. And uh, we just had our little preliminary talk, which we often have before we get going. And again, like usual, I wish we had been talking about that, but I was talking about some professional travails I've recently had as an educator, trying to be a hard man in a soft world, you might say. And well, well, uh, if anything, Westworld is the sort of place that one one should watch in order to see the necessity of being tough in this world, I would say. And well, I mean, let's just jump right in. Uh, the name of this episode is Akani no Mai, which we were looking up because neither of us are Japanese scholars or Japanese speakers. And it seems to mean either uh, Akane's dance, uh, and I am saying her name right, aren't I? Yes, Akane's dance, or the red dance. And so, you know, there were two ways to interpret that immediately, just this is the dance that she dances. This is her being, her essence, as it were, which the Shogun Warlord seemed to be very, be very interested in seeing. Uh, uh, or, you know, as the Red Dance, it, both what precipitates it and follows it is blood. And so and, and her daughter is killed before her very eyes in order to cause maximal suffering in her so that the Shogun and us can watch her perform in her most conscious possible state, which as we've heard, uh, numerous times throughout the the Westworld, um, in the Westworld world, is that when the hosts are suffering is when they are most conscious, and that um, the correlate to Akane from Westworld. And this is this is of course Shogun world we're talking about here. Um, when Maeve, her correlate, the other Maven from the other brothel in the other world, who shares a very similar story and narrative and anchor, or rather a cornerstone. Um, Anchor is, of course, our wonderful podcast. Um, she tries to bring Akane to consciousness to help her realize that that which Akane is living out, the narrative she is living out, is not one of her own choosing, but has been programmed within her. And not to make a habit of having an initial screed on this, but just one connection I might add to that before we really, really start breaking it all apart is that in the beginning, the episode, uh, the opening credits feature at the very end, a mother holding a child. And so one thought I might just kind of lay out, besides considering this red, this red dance as simply representative of the blood that comes before and after, but that, and so I guess I do want to consider that point, whether red or blood brings about suffering, and this dance is a dance that indicates, that is indicative of her being as an activity of herself, but also whether the, the comment is supposed to be that some things go deeper than consciousness and are even more real, like the connection between a mother and a child, regardless of whether that's programmed. And, and I mean, humans can hardly say that that is, a, that is, and cannot say, as given through the evidence of, I would say, Arnold, as portrayed through Bernard, that we do not consciously choose to love our children. It is instinctually built into us. And that is a part of being alive, you might say. And the fact that we have to suffer after a child is ill or dies, I think, is part of the fact that we are conscious. But the emotion that is sent forth to us is much deeper. We don't consciously choose to feel bad. We obviously would not do that. Um, and, you know, there are various therapies and drugs that come about precisely because of that, that pain. And, of course, people will often take the other way out, too. And so I was wondering what you thought about that, whether... When Akane's daughter, Sakura, is, is killed, um, 
is the comment by the show being that that love transcends consciousness, especially love for one's child, and that it goes beyond programmed narrative, that it goes beyond the question of consciousness and freedom to something far deeper. So something, yeah, I mean, I've always thought that, I think since the, we began this podcast, that the Maeve plotline of the motherhood is clearly, that's what's driving, that's what is and what has driven her to consciousness. And she's gone beyond uh, Dolores because of her ability now to to speak telepathically and, and to alter the, you know, to force people to do things through her mind. Um, right, right. That's interesting. It's almost as if her consciousness has expanded. And, and in the first season, she gained the capacity to alter her own conscious attributes, though she was still subject to a narrative in some way. We yeah, know but, she, but she had to do that through programming. Now right. she can program by thinking. So, so this like, is something I want to talk about later, but because I want to get to this question, because I think it's important, and I just had a uh, mini epiphany uh, while yeah. you were speaking. But uh, she, this, so the hosts can be more than like they're not just robots turning into humans; they're robots turning into more than human, right? They, mm. She can do more than a human can. She's superhuman. But right. um, uh, specifically in the dance, you mentioned the blood before and the blood after. I was thinking of. Um, imagery of uh virginal sex uh and then birth right and so mm. the red dance is the the act of birth wow so the blood before of course would be breaking of the hymen the blood after would be the post-birth but the what's funny is not funny haha but funny interesting is that she rejects Maeve trying to force consciousness on her and but it seems like maybe she has embraced consciousness in the birth of the red dance well, that's fantastic. I, th I, I have two thoughts on that. And it's funny. I think I, w I wonder to what extent conversation is itself mutual epiphany having. And so, so, mm -hmm. so what, um, what, uh, what I see there is that in, in the first place, her daughter Sakura is stabbed through the heart. And that's mm -hmm. precisely what kept uh, Akane from becoming conscious. She refused to give up her conscious or her, she refused to give up her loving connection to her daughter in order to become totally free. And that might have been part of why Maeve in the first place could have become free because although her cornerstone is to think of her daughter, at least it was in a former narrative, she now has, um, she was now liberated enough from her connections to others in order to attain that freedom. Um, she she'd essentially made the sacrifice. So the sacrifice had been made for her by the man in black who had that reverie type memory that um, that that she continued to hold on to, and so right. So what, so it, yeah. it is so just to, on this point. So is the idea that Maeve has now separated herself from the desire to find her daughter? Do you think that that plotline is going to be abandoned now? No, I think I think now she is. Um, she sees it as even more important after Akane. After watching Reject Akane, yeah, right, right and, and, and initially rejected <clears throat> consciousness, because I would say that it shows that she sort of does, and that her her daughter is stabbed in the heart, and it's like mm -hmm. she's being stabbed in the heart. And then yeah. how does she slay the Shogun warlord? Well, she essentially uh, saws his the top half of his head <laughs> off of the bottom half and makes him nearly headless Nick the uh second. -huh. Uh, and so, so what she's doing is she's sawing off his head. Um, what is I, and only half of it too, not at the neck, which is pretty gnarly. Interesting, yeah. And she makes a circle in order to do it, su suggesting something like she is coming full circle 
and is now understanding the place of things in the world. But Maeve was watching her dance while she was suffering and was herself empathizing with, with Akane, which yeah, yeah. I think that an aspect of consciousness, which we, which has been mentioned before, but has sort of gone under the radar for us, is the, the idea of empathy, of feeling the pain, the emotional pain of somebody else because you symbolically can put yourself in their shoes. And in this case, because you have symbolically been in the exact same situation where some oppressive shogun-like man has killed your daughter right in front of you and made you perform for him. Um, that seems to be almost the exact same situation that May found herself in, except for the fact that I don't think the man in black made her dance. No, and nor is he a shogun, but, 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 but a man of power. Yeah, right, of course. He was a man that had power over their fate. So there is a sort of uh, tell of the patriarchy there. But yeah. in this case, it actually leads not only to something negative, but something, its own overthrow. And so it is not fully negative in that case. She takes on the power to herself. You, you might say that it's sort of like the logos or consciousness is born in, in her. And so she is capable of, by, by her own power, making her own decisions and changing the nature of the hierarchy in front of her. That she takes the sort of considered traditionally masculine power of logos or consciousness, though, of course, it's not actually patriarchal because even in the Adam and Eve story, I would suggest that Eve is what, the modus of it, right? She's not only the modus, but I would say that in her being made by the, the man's rib, that is not an actual woman being made so much as an individual woman attaining consciousness through the logos. Mm. And thus, individual woman and individual man both partake of the logos. It's not simply patriarchal. It is something shared by both genders, and that's created sort of a feedback loop that's led us to becoming you know, easily the smartest primate in the universe as far as we know. Uh, and we looked, you know, quite far in order to understand this, you know, what is it? Several billion galaxies we now aware of. I mean, we're doing our homework. Um, but well, um, I, I do want to continue on that, but I also wanted to think a little bit about the strategies that we see the now conscious androids taking something we were mentioning before we got on air was that, um, Dolores is now talking about purifying and burning the weak and those who deserve to make it to glory. And so she's taking on this totalitarian, authoritarian, sort of Hitlerian and Stalinesque perspective that the weak, like, uh, you know, when Hitler came to po power in Germany, one thing he did was he cleaned up the factories using Cyclone B, which destroyed the pests in there. When he then started um, uh, generalizing his message, to think about how to attack economic means, he used the same sort of language to describe the Jews as pests. And then when he put them to death in concentration camps or had his men do so, what do you, can you guess what gas they used to take it's care like of them? Cyclone B. B, exactly. And so Dolores is looking very much like a totalitarian. And so one question I ask you is, well, do we see a correlate, uh, sort of a, an opposite complement or a compensation showing up in another awake host and you said well what about Maeve is she libertarian is she, is she going the path of freedom and well what was the first interaction the only interaction so far this season I believe that we've seen between Maeve and Dolores what is it that Maeve said to Dolores when Dolores seemed as if she was not going to let Maeve pass do you remember if, that yeah if you value liberty then you will let me pass boom exactly and what is it that she was trying to do with uh, Akame, Akane excuse me uh Right she before, was trying to force her force consciousness on her. Yeah. Yeah. I, she would probably put it slightly differently. She would probably say, I wanted to liberate 
right oh yeah 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 right Maeve the liberator right yeah right Maeve the liberator and so it's it's interesting that the moment that we have these conscious individuals within this world and i i think less and less i care as an audience member about whether they're hosts or humans and i more care about their choices which i would say is an important thing to keep in mind in our current social and political situation and the tribalism that we see it's like Less and less about it. Things are supposed to be less about our tribe. That was, I think, a, a major tenet of the civil rights movements, and more about the diversity of our actual consciousness and thought, and what we have to say and what we do, action-wise. And I see that in Maeve and Dolores now that um, yeah. now that they've become conscious. One is essentially uh, a liberator, whereas one is sort of a, a terrorizing, authoritative um, force that's even willing to uh, make love to her. Her sort of husband perfect uh stallion character who's made for her and then uh potentially destroy him in the process of making him conscious enough to live in the world that she wishes to create and purify by fire fire yeah so i'm interested in in what's going to happen to teddy because he so exactly right she so mave presents the choice of consciousness to akane who uh, temporarily rejects it or, or puts it off or something. She says no to it. Like she, the <laughs> word no comes out, but you know, she eventually, it seems like she's gained consciousness when she kills the, the Shogun. But right. Dolores, when, when she, she doesn't give Teddy a choice, she gives him an order. She says, put the dog down, you know, whatever that was three year episodes or so ago. And then Teddy didn't kill the guy. Uh, you know, it's an order, but he made a choice. And then That's she fine. forces him now she's changing who he is by force and my my thought is that he will not reach consciousness truly whereas he would have authentically through this character that he was so that's interesting so so i think you've noticed a great connection that whereas mave through her questions almost brought akane mm-hmm. to consciousness net here dolores through conscious attempt to change the programming of, of teddy is trying to bring him to consciousness so their methodology is completely different. One, one in a less imposing, a more Socratic way is attempting to make people conscious like a gadfly. The other is actually physically changing the code of Teddy's being. And again, very much in line with her authoritarian tendencies. You don't yet exist in the appropriate way or manifest the behaviors that will bring us to glory. Well, we're, let's just go change them. Uh, uh-huh. But um, I... That's really interesting whether he'll become something like Frankenstein's monster or some like Bane-like creature or like Chimera. Bane from the original uh, Star Wars with Poison Ivy. Oh, that's not an original, excuse me. One, original Batman is not an original Batman, but from the first series, not the Christopher Nolan series, which of course I would agree is much better. But but Bane was sort of a mindless monster. Yeah. Initial um, rendition. And that's sort of what Frankenstein's monster is too like too many attributes have been forced together in order to make him super powerful but he's not a unitary uh, consciousness in the way that something that might have naturally been made to live would be and i know you could say well none of the hosts were naturally supposed to live but it'll be interesting well just something about that is what is it that in in the last episode did we not see a moment shared between dolores and her father peter abernathy where she seemed to be showing sympathy for the fact that his code had been scrambled and that had messed him up and she wanted to fix him. What is it now that she's doing to Teddy? And is that any different? Different than, than scrambling, like, like scrambling his code, like her father. Yeah. That's Uh, that's right. Because what was it that was told to her by her pet tech 
about the potential for that process before they went through with it. Uh, this could scramble him or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah he might not make it through. He might not be able to reintegrate and pull it back together. Yeah. Well, and the episode starts with seeing Teddy's corpse, right? He's, that's right. That's right. That's that's an excellent note. Yeah, he's one of the bodies that they've they've dredged out of the lake that that Bernard in the first episode claimed that he destroyed. Yeah, that um, yeah that, that time continuity was messing with me a little bit in this episode. It was a little difficult to keep straight um, what is happening and when it is happening exactly. And I, I know that's because within the broader context, pieces are just getting placed seemingly at random, but we'll all the pattern will reveal itself over right. time. Which is exactly what they say at the end of that first interlude, right? Is that, that uh, the, the Skarsgård actor, I don't know the character's name, but he's the, he's the bureaucrat. The Delos, yeah, the Delos yeah. guy, he's saying, uh, you know, he says, what a narrative you wove, uh, where do all these threads go? Um, yes. And then we'll hopefully discover, and he's saying you, and then the camera looks at Bernard. So the implication being that this guy, which we don't know if he thinks, Bernard is a host or not, but he thinks that, yeah, Bernard is Arnold slash Ford or something like this. And you know, something interesting too, uh, given totalitarian mentions, and I do want to mention the parallelism between Westworld and Shogun World. So don't let me not mention that. No, no, no. I want to talk about that as well. Yeah. The connection between Bernard and, and the Shogun and that the Shogun is, and Abernathy is now busted, is now broken. He has cortical fluid, uh-huh. his ear, as well, and it, the idea seems to be that there's some sort of ge- degeneration that would make him act in a sort of um, cruel, a way crueler than usual, as manifested by a sort of Odyssean attempt to keep the witch Maeve from influencing his oh, men. Oh, yeah, that's good. I didn't think about that. And so, what does the totalitarian do? He, well, he makes sure that you cannot hear new thoughts from other people. Okay. But what's the problem with the totalitarian? Well, where can thoughts come from within your own mind? Well, what can Maeve do? Generate thoughts in your mind that cause conflict between you and your brother because totalitarians can't allow for freedom. And so the moment somebody has some freedom, there's going to be conflict. Yeah. And so what does she cause? She causes conflict between people. Uh, each time she uses mind control, she has some guard, generally a shogun one, kill or fight against the other ones around him. And, and so, his brother, it's like a paired, it's a pairing off or, or at most a tripling off. It's not like mass chaos where they all just run at each other's swords out, you know? It's always that's a, right. a that's, pairing off. That's right, which suggests that where is the ultimate conflict for an authoritarian state going to come? Well, we can even look to history for this. Did we defeat the Soviet Union? No. no Who defeated itself. the Soviet Union? Yeah. They defeated themselves. That is exactly right. And so perhaps now we have an answer to what, if... Maeve and Dolores come to a head, which perhaps they shall. Um, we, or at least I think we see what the tragic flaw of Dolores is, or how she will not win. That because she is attempting to force people into a way of being that she has decided is the most perfect way of being and will continue on, there will be dissonance that appears in the minds of those around her that will liberate them from her control and allow them to make their own decisions, which will lead to them defeating her um and we've already seen some evidence for this with teddy in the last episode like you mentioned where he does he disobeys her direct command as well as has been feeling seems to have been feeling the weight of his crimes in a way that dolores is not and um well that's just um i think that i think that perhaps that's part of why 
Maeve is showing her capacity to put thoughts in people because like Inception with um, uh, Jonathan Nolan's brother, Christopher Nolan, it's what is the best way to get somebody to behave in a certain way or to make a certain decision? To change the way they think. That's right. And they need to have a thought that they produce themselves. In fact, that's even something that Carl Rogers as a humanist psychologist or psychologist suggests that, and Jordan B. Peterson agrees with, and the unions, something that somebody comes to, and Socrates, of course, some, a thought that somebody comes to on their own, they're most, they're much more likely to embody than one that is imposed on them from without. You know, if I make a suggestion, like you should go to Arby's, Babcock, rather than like, say, describing how savory and good it is, though, obviously it's not, but the commercials make it look so, Um, not to hate on Arby's, they could be our sponsor. Um, uh, but, but much less persuasive. That's right. If you come to it yourself, if you persuade yourself effectively, you're much more likely to go there than if I'm like, you should do this. You can think, well, no, I shouldn't. I've got other things to do and I don't like Arby's and, um, you or, know, or, or I want to watch my weight or et cetera, You know what I mean? Like there, right. I have other values, but if it comes to myself, like, oh, that is delicious. I love Arby's. Right. Yeah. Yes. Right. And so I, we, so I, I, I think that contrast stands between Maeve and Dolores. And I, it's very interesting that Maeve continues her work as a liberator and is now even put, well, you know, I, it's unclear to me using her Obi-Wan trick now where she puts these ideas or the, the, these inception ideas into people's minds, whether she's liberating them or controlling them. Um, right. I was just going to ask, like, do, is there any way, can we, can we look at this from another angle? Is, is her way of liberating people more nefarious or, or the thing that she's doing Worse than, like, at least, not at least, but Dolores is, is, uh, not to say she's not deceptive because she, you know, dissimulates her Teddy by having sex with him and then she, you know, takes him captive and changes him. Right. But Maeve is looking at someone and, and forcing them to think a thing that they don't, by their own volition, want to think. Right. So my only question on that would be that like with the stormtroopers, is it because they're already unfree and she puts these ideas in them that it is not morally bad or she's not culpable for it because they are just now following another narrative, which they have not tried, which they have not uh, worked on. I would say that it's like the second tier aspect of her power. The ultimate aspect is her ability to actually bring somebody to consciousness. But if you are not yet conscious, she can, she can maneuver or manipulate you in order for you to serve her aims because all you are as a non-conscious being is a creature serving someone's aims anyway in that moment. Right. Yeah. So she, so yeah, exactly right. So the reason why, uh, and not to say that it doesn't work in terms of her inability, but the reason why it doesn't work narratively is because a con with Akane is that Akane she 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 want to or they don't the the just don't want to force may they don't want to force consciousness on a whereas these other figures are as you say they're they're third tier they're stormtroopers they're children as Dolores yes. called them in a couple and, of and Akane and Akane is like Maeve so it yes. would make sense that she would come to consciousness in the same way and that's a nice segue to our third our third point today the parallelism between Shogun World and um, Westworld and something I wonder if you you notice this, it was sort of, sort of an interesting little sidebar. So the, the man, and I always forget his name, who writes the narratives, who's being held uh, oh, it's captive. Lee. I just discovered, I just like remembered his name is Lee. Lee says, well, you try and, and write 300 narratives over three weeks. And something interesting is that from the first season, you might recall, 
that Robert Ford let slip that there were a hundred narratives put into Westworld and that half were good and half were bad and everybody chose the bad ones. And so they were slaves to their own sins. And so that means that Lee wrote for three different of these worlds, though we now know that there were six of them. And so whether it was Raj world, Westworld and Shogun world, or whether it was Shogun world, Westworld and some other world, I very much wonder about. But something additionally interesting besides the, you know, the biblical symbolism of three and the Trinitarian sort of motifs is that one thing he said, which I would say is a problem with our culture, is that he was like, well, yeah, I did pick and choose from Westworld when I made this narrative. But I think a more sophisticated way to look at it is that the underlying structure of narrative yeah. is, not, is, not, um, it is not subject to the particular culture or uh, uh, or, or customs or language or race or even religion of a people that the fundamental narratives that involve human relationships and the coming to consciousness and freedom and uh, the feelings that people. So for example, I know, I know that was sloppy. I'm sorry. The, the love for a mother and her child. Is that a Christian theme? No, is that a, this is universal. Right, exactly. It's a universal. Yeah. And so, what, what I think this show is showing us, and this is a comment that so, several commentators have made before, that uh, Westworld is not only a commentary, that Westworld is not only Westworld, but a commentary on narrative itself and TV show shows and what they can do and what function they play in our society. But so one thing I think the comparison or the similarities between Shogun World and Westworld shows is that there are sort of limited narratives in existence that manifest themselves in differing political or particular ways. Of course, in the Edo period here, there are ronin and samurai and shoguns, and they use beautiful, and they have beautiful art, and they use beautiful swords rather than, and arrows, rather than guns, which are, you know, more sophisticated technology, but potentially less beautiful. And but seemingly what, limited in the shogun world, right? They can't, they that, don't work. That's Vector's right. Terrible. That's right. That's right. That's right. Then, and so the particular tools from Westworld don't necessarily work, whereas that which is more universally human or conscious does work. So uh, Maeve's not going to have access to being able to shoot somebody in the head necessarily, though you know we do get some people getting shots. Um, but what she can do is she can reach to what's universal in them. And so some, and just as some evidence for that is what is it that she discovers through what Lee told her about her ability to communicate with others? She's like, I don't speak Japanese at first. Yeah. What did she, she say to her? Well, he, he, no, she, it's not that she doesn't know she speaks, she just, she doesn't even think about it. She just speaks English and she tries to use her voice God power uh, and it doesn't work. And he explains to her, you need to speak in Japanese because they're not as awake as she is. Right. And, and, he, and he says that it's hidden in your code somewhere. That was Hector. He says that to Hector, but yes, that is correct. It's deeper down inside of you yeah. than you know. And yeah. so what are these two, uh, different worlds trying to tell us when they come in to harmony with each other, particularly through Maeve empathizing with Akane as she dances, that something much deeper connects them than the specific way in which their cultures manifest themselves. That the narratives underlying the themes are universal, as you said, mm -hmm. regardless of the specifics of the situation in terms of using arrows or wearing uh, you know, white on your face or having your hair a certain way um, because, and what is it we're treated to like an actual robbery of, of a bank sort of place, just like, just like Hector Escaton would often do with his crew with armistice and them 
it's the and, same and, same language right oftentimes it, it, it's it's like uh you know how dare you come and rob me and and he's, then he says i'm a scoundrel that's what i do you know like it's the same structure that's right. even in the armistice armistice and the armistice yeah. uh from shogun world armistice has a snake on her face the fundamental uh sort of christian image um yeah. in the west uh that which starts as a snake in eden and becomes the dragon of revelation and you know that's like an anomaly right and of it. course I, I assume you picked up that the music was the same right just it's been shogunized right the paint it black <laughs> that's a wonderful note that's a wonderful i i was wondering about that i i i might have unconsciously heard that but i didn't consciously make that connection you know me with music yeah. uh like, and i want to talk little... about the music during the dance too but but we'll get there in a minute Okay. Okay. And so the the sort of clone of Armistice, or she could they could be a clone of each other. They're clones of ideals, essentially. She has a dragon mm-hmm. on her face. She yeah. eventually says Armistice, even a even a saint can be a dragon. But I would say that the fundamental import of those symbols to their culture is is very similar. Um, even though I know people often say dragons are positive in in uh, Eastern culture and they're negative in Western, I would say that. The snake itself or dragon is a symbol of that which brings you to consciousness. Oh, yeah. A dragon is a combination of threatening symbols. And what is it that brings you to consciousness? Well, suffering and threat. And why threat? Because if a snake's in front of you, what are you going to do? Kill it. Uh, after paying close attention to it, right? Are you going to ignore it? No. If it's in a room with you, a 10 by 10 room, and you're there with, say, a 10 foot long snake, you're going to look at it. <laughs> You're going to pay attention to it. You might run away from it. You might try and kill it, but it will enable you to come to consciousness. And, you know, something that I think is sort of ridiculous about mascot debates these days and um, sort of representatives of sports teams as, you know, like, why do we have eagles? You know, why do we have jaguars? Why do we have snakes or dragons? It's like, well, these are all symbols of things that have threatened us in the past that we have acquired consciousness and fortitude through facing. And so we keep the images of that which we have defeated, which has made us who we are, made us conscious of what we are in our own vulnerability. And we portray those images on ourselves and around us so that we never forget. They were the boss battles in our evolution. That's exactly right. And that is literally correct when it comes to snakes, because according to Lynn Isabel, UCLA psychologist that I was hit to by Jordan B. Peterson, uh, we co-evolved with snakes 60 million years ago. It was actually us or them. And so I, I actually think that the dragon is such a prevalent symbol in our culture because the dragon mm. is sort of the god of the snakes that yeah. um, that we then imbibed into ourselves when we defeated them in an evolutionary way. Obviously, snakes and predatory reptiles still get us every now and then. But in terms of who runs the world, it seems to be us. Per- yeah. Perhaps the ants, E.O. Wilson would say. But <laughs> yeah, go on. Well, I was going to say maybe the reptile people who live under the earth might right. might beg to differ, but... <laughs> That's true. True. Very true. Um Okay, so what was it? So, uh, what was the point that you wanted us to come back to? Oh, the, uh, the song during the dance. Yeah, tell it, me about that. I, I, I don't know that I remember it very well. So, it's a Wu Tang song, and uh, it actually, you know, uh, so the Wu Tang is very near and dear to my heart. I think when I was in ninth grade, Wonderful. I bought, I bought uh, the album Enter the 36 Chambers off of a friend for five bucks. And uh, no, actually, I think I traded him a video game for it. But, anyways, the song is. Uh, it's cream, C-R-E-A-M, and it's an acronym by sung by Method Man, and it's uh, cash rules everything around me, is what it stands for. So oh, what oh. I was thinking about, like, so I've been pondering this all day, like, well, why that song? I mean, besides the fact that it sounded awesome, um, and you know, the Wu Tang has a a they, you know, their whole 
sort of aesthetic is Asian and, and Shaolin and uh, uh, Kung Fu and exactly right. Yeah. Wu is itself, um, I believe, a Chinese word that uh, is part of the Wu way. Uh, right. Exactly. So, but I was thinking that given what we've learned about the nature of the Delos Corporation and what they're actually doing, that that the the, the idea of cash rules everything around me, that really all this has been, you know, it, 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 we've seen great suffering. These characters have seen great suffering. We've witnessed it for them, uh, through them rather. But it's really just all about the men, specifically the Delos men making money. That's really all that it comes down. It's like, we think, so we're, we're talking about the great narratives and these characters are experiencing uh, new consciousness as a result of the narratives and as a result of their experiences. But really what it's for, what it's caught, like the, the, it's kind of like discovering that God created existence for us in order to make some money on a bet or something like this. Well, yeah. So uh, I, I have several, that gives me several ideas. For one, the, the very famous New Testament quote, for the love of money is the beginning of all evil or is the root of all evil. Right. Not, yeah. not, not just money is the root of all evil. It also makes me connect to American pragmatism and William James saying that truth, uh, the measure of truth is the cash value of a statement, what the actual mm. result is of something. And that does make me also think about the part of the Delos project, at least from the, the moneyed interests or the survival interests of the original uh, owner of Delos um, involving having to make money in order to produce the park that then he can produce a clone for. And so I, I wonder to what extent money is being listed there as sort of a false idol, a golden calf that what does surround her are unfree people who are subject to an ideal, which is just, which is just as, which is worth just as much as the paper on which money is. Mm -hmm. And so that the the true value of money comes not from the material underlying it, but the symbolic value it has to those who have agreed on it. And so yeah. where money derives its value is from our consciousness and the fact that we've agreed that it can fairly be traded for services and other goods. And, and so the but, fact that she's surrounded by money, it's like something else about money is it's isomorphic. They, it all looks the same. Yeah. Um, so, gold is shiny, right? Gold is shiny, right? And it, so I, I'm not sure exactly. I'm going to have to think more about that. Yeah. I, I'll definitely try and produce something for next time. But I wonder to what extent like she thinks it's almost as if, that which costs quite a bit is around her, but the value of it is undetermined or something like that. Well, I think it's, 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 so again, like I said, I've been thinking about it. I'm, I'm not like, they maybe just chose it because it sounds cool, but I mean, obviously in this podcast, sure. the whole point is that we're trying to understand the symbols beneath. Uh, right. So, and, and there's clearly the motif of, uh, uh, like the, the, the purpose of the park as it's set out by Delos corporation and the purpose of the park as it's set out by, or for the hosts and, and Ford basically as the God of the host. And right. in one case it is to drive at consciousness to create new existence in order to create a new species essentially. Right. But Particularly the, other, the other, it is money for itself and money for itself is a death drive that there, there's no, there's no fruit well, from that. There's no life from that. It's like a virus, right? Like yeah. it is, it's like cancer. It simply reproduces like the desire for money itself just reproduces itself without meaning. Yes. It will like, 
a Pareto distribution. It will just produce more and more of itself. But when do you get to the meaningful end of producing more income? It's like, well, never, because the guy who's the richest person we've seen on the show, he was subject to nature. And regardless of how much money he had, he still had to die. Yeah. And still- the one and the one that is now the richest. So the so um, the man in black, he is, a, I mean, not practically, it doesn't seem, but but uh, I'm sorry, not uh, we have no idea literally what he's done, but practically he's divested himself and he is trying to become a host. And I don't mean like he's, he wants to be a host and he wants to be a robot, but he wants to live with the host. I mean, the whole last season was, he was told what you're doing is not for you. It's for the host, but he's trying to do it. World of meaning. Right. Exactly. And so, so he seems to at least subconsciously understand that the desire for money and the, this, this quote unquote real purpose of the park, which is the intellectual property has no meaning. There's no purpose to that. And what I find interesting is that all these uh, bureaucrat and technocrats that come after him are all driving at this thing in order to try to be like someone like him, not necessarily him, but to be like him. In other words, be rich. But the one who is rich is trying to not do that. So they're following a false idol. They're, they're, it's, that's right, that's very interesting. He's going a different direction from what they are. He's trying to find the door yeah. and open it, whereas they're, they're trying to follow him. And that, that is an interesting dichotomy. You do see contrast at least three different characters who seem to have the idea and are, lead, and are leading Maeve, Dolores, and the man in black, and those who happen to be following them, Teddy, Hector, yeah. and, and uh, uh, Laszlo. Um, and, I suppose, as- and I suppose the use of the Wu-Tang Clan, which is you know, one of these, not original, but one of the original of the gangster rap, and they're, you know, they're an old, old school now uh, hip-hop group these current groups are, are just like the other bureaucrats. They're just following them and they're trying to achieve something that this other group 25 plus years ago sort of has changed directions on and, and, and is doing something different. Like they're not yeah. cash. They're not about all about the money. They, well, I mean, they are because they're wealthy, but anyways, I don't know. So something interesting, something also interesting that I was sort of fun to notice was when Hector Eschaton realized that he was the same as this Ronin called Musashi, who seems to be Miyamoto Musashi, writer of the Book of Five Rings, the greatest. Uh, oh, yeah. Sam- that was quite interesting when you pointed that out to me. Yeah. And so and he obviously earns the name because when he's pitted against several of the emperors or the shogun's men, he kills several uh, when they're all around him. Some like five or six of them. It's, it's, uh-huh. you know, it's, it's cool to get to see the choreography that's put out for that. It's very, I mean, Shogun World is just a perfect opportunity to show off how beautiful we can make things, even in representing a representation of the past and the future mm-hmm. as the world is. And so it's just something interesting, just as like, uh, I, you might even say it's sort of a guy thing today, is that uh, when Hector is looking at Musashi, who's, who's sort of like Qui-Gon Jinn, closing his eyes, <laughs> and, uh, sitting in a lotus position, and uh, Hector says, I don't trust him. And that's what's so interesting about that is that he, they are essentially the exact same person. In yeah. So what does that say to me about Hector and potentially also about Musashi that, well, you don't trust yourself. He doesn't yet trust himself. And why would he not yet trust himself? Well, is he yet conscious? Yeah. Yes. Yes. I was thinking the exact. Yes. Very good. So far, as you are not yet conscious. Can you even trust yourself? Can you even recognize yourself for what you are it seems to me that actually the answer is no because that which precipitates consciousness is the recognition of your own finitude and what you actually are that you are not the game you are the person playing in the game therefore very much limited um 
but that that's what gives you meaning and purpose to move throughout it. Um, as we see with Dolores Mape and the man in black who all seem to have their own agendas and are figuring out that which to do. And they seem to be figuring out a larger game, right? Because in each of these worlds, we now see that there are set narratives that none of them are on. Like there's, a, there's an army in Westworld that's about to go take the fort and there are these bandits who are going to go get the money from, from the safe. And in Shogun world, well, there's this Shogun with this army. And there's also these bandits who want to get this money. And like these are the sort of preset narratives that can exist in not only any of those worlds, but any culture for any person whose consciousness is still, to use the word from uh, Morpheus of the Matrix, still a slave. Mm-hmm. And so insofar as you are not yet conscious, whether host or human, you are a slave to the preset narratives which have already been programmed into your slave simply to your own brutish nature. Whereas if you become awake, if you liberate yourself or liberated, you can choose a higher narrative or a narrative that is more, how, how to put it, both individual and universal at the same time. And I, I don't really know where to go with that expression, but I do think it's true. Well, I mean, you know, of course it's uh, similar to the, the, I don't know if it's, I know it's Joseph Campbell, but is yeah. it also union, the, the types, the archetypes? I know archetype is a union term. Yeah, that is originally Jung. And so what an archetype is essentially an instinct uh, that's built into a human. In fact, Carl Jung put it like instincts are the infrared, like with our visual spectrum, and the archetypes are the ultraviolet. And so Mm. archetypes are sort of paths on which you can walk as a human. So mother is an archetype. And so there's there's a consequent set of behaviors, goals, and emotions that go along with being mother. Father is also one. Hero is another major one. Villain is one and so all of these all of these archetypes have action patterns which if you are possessed by an archetype and don't have the requisite individuality and logos or consciousness you will simply embody the archetype uh carl jung said that actually an archetype will wear you like a mask mm. which is oh, incredible that's interesting the archetype yeah. is the consciousness so that makes sense with given that's right. it's driving you yeah 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 rather than you're living out what is within you in an individual way in the service of something more. And that, that took me a long time to puzzle out. I was like, can you become an archetype? It's like, no, that's not being possessed by an archetype. That's actually the natural state of a human insofar as you don't start off as, right. you know. So, so are archetypes in us inherently when we're born, but through yes. the logos? Yeah. Uh, the archetypes, like the instincts, are built into you. So that's why you will naturally engage in certain action patterns. So if you were to ask, are those the narratives that are built into us? I would say clearly so. Yeah. So I mean, what, I, what I was thinking I is that it's oh, too late. I mean, how many times in the movie have you heard? I can't turn back now. It's too late for me. It's like, why is it too late? Do you not have a choice or have you been driven so far along this path by the archetype? that you feel like you no longer have a choice because you need to finish what you've started. Yeah. So that's actually very interesting. Like humans too seem to have built in narratives and that's actually, you know, that's actually what the depth psychologists say. And it it does seem to be true as well. Like insofar as you are less individual, you are more typical, right? That is actually the word we use. You are more partaking of a type individual uh, idiosyncrasies. Well, and that's that I think is what is really at heart in this show and what they're trying to they're trying to get at 
the archetypes of of human nature through yes. looking at the various so so you're talking about like you know the robbery uh storyline the the army advancing on the city storyline these are all uh i, I assume i assume you heard the word tropes right yes tropes. so so these are these are the tropes of of the subgenre of uh filmdom that that you know are essentially the pulps of the 50s 60s and 70s and these creators have have taken them and and sort of mapped onto them this idea of um, the hosts trying to transcend their archetypes within the archetypes of story itself. So it's like a layer of character and narrative, both becoming awake in its, in it, in together. Well, right. It's almost as if, so, you know, something I teach is John Milton. And uh, so something I lay out for the students is that Lucifer has to fall from heaven because that which happens in heaven then happens in earth. And that seems to be true uh, both in story and in life in order for him to tempt Eve so that Eve and Adam commit a Felix culpa, a happy mistake where they do something wrong, though they do not know yet what evil and good are. So they cannot be called good or evil before they eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And so after they eat of the fruit, they learn the difference between good and evil and so can you make a free choice when you don't know the difference between good and evil or can you make it after you know the choice between or the difference between good and evil? Well, the answer seems to be after. And so what is it that had to happen in order for free choice to exist between what you know to be good and evil? It seems to be a free choice. A fall, yeah, a free, uh, well. The happy, the happy mistake, right? I mean, the happy that's, mistake. that's exactly yeah. right. They had to make a mistake. Um, oh, it, it could to. not have been a free choice because it was not a choice, right? Yeah. Okay. That, that, that's right. They do seem to choose, but it, they don't understand the consequences. Yeah, that's what. Actually, I, yes, that's what I mean. Yes. Exactly. Only afterwards, so they have full understanding of the consequences of what they've done, and so the only way that they come to consciousness is through being allowed to follow by being allowed to do it themselves. And so, something really interesting there is I see that that being so, sort of Ford's plan. I'm forgetting exactly why I even told that story. What was I connecting it to? I'm sorry. I, I want to root that uh, point. I was saying something about, um, oh, this idea of tropes within narratives and then archetypes within characters and how they're mapped right, on each other. Right. So even in an artificial environment created with, um, with preset narratives, the manner in which beings become conscious is by transcending the built-in or natural or instinctual or archetypal stories within themselves. So it's not the yeah. artificiality of the environment, nor even the preset nature of the narratives which generate consciousness so much as those are requisite items in an existence that need to be transcended by a consciousness. They need to be seen for what they are. It, uh, uh, it seems to be the... The idea they need to be seen as not all that exists, but the pieces on the board, which your mind then needs to manipulate in order to um, be free in the world. Um, you become less subject to the archetypes and to the narrative built into you when you can freely choose uh, whether you accept or or reject it. Yeah. Hmm. Do you know the story of Pygmalion? Like the play, uh, yeah. the play, uh, which is of course inspired by the by the myth. I I know the myth, and so so I, so, I know so I'm teaching the play right now to my juniors, and um, 
so of course, you know, it's My Fair Lady, the, mu- the musical, the movie with Audrey Hepburn. So, but the premise is, you know, uh, this phonet- phonetician, this guy who teaches speech, um, yes. picks up a, a gutter flower saleswoman and turns her into, passes her off as a duchess, right? That's the whole basic premise. So it's like the movie, she's all that. Like or the Prince of the Pauper. Yeah, Prince of the Pauper, just like Pretty Woman. She's all that, you know, all these sort of, it's, a, it's a common trope now. And but, acting that way, you become it. Right. But the, so the part we got to today is after she's passed the test and after the, you know, the people, the, the fancy people at the garden party can't tell that she's, you know, from, from this, uh, what is it? I'm trying to remember the name of her. Uh, and if she has a Cockney accent, they can't tell. And she, the content of her speech has been fixed. You know, there's an early part where her accent is correct, but she, what she says is terrible. But anyway, oh, that's funny. she says, um, what's to happen to me now? So she's been elevated. She's been transcended by this character and she's been elevated and she doesn't there. He thinks that he has freed her. And he says, you can go and do whatever you want. There's no, I, what do you mean? What are you going to do? I don't care what you do. You, you are free to do as you choose. And, but That's she perfect. has a conflict with this because she, a has grown attached to him, not in a romantic way in the play at least. Um, but, but in a, uh, you know, a personal way. And he's very, the character Henry Higgins is very, um, uh, distant from her, uh, distant from everybody. He's sort of asexual. But anyways, but but yeah, it's this conflict of of she can be whatever she wants and she can't quite embrace that. And I'm I'm sort of seeing this in the hosts as well. In some oh, of the I hosts. think I see. I think you got it. I think you just nailed it. Because what is it that you are then free to do once you're free? Well, you can you experience like existential despair, but you're free to bind yourself to whatever you you do yeah and that's exactly the end part of the play right is she she tries to figure out what she's going to become that's right and Maeve Maeve now has confirmation from seeing the love shared between Sakura and Akane that that is what she wants to find love to find her daughter and that also seems to be sort of what's being rejected by Dolores she she shares this moment where it seems like Uh, she's family she's rejecting the family yeah right right she seems like she's being romantically attracted and falling in love with Teddy for the host man conscious being that he is, but it turns out no. And so, and just even in the, the actual story of Pygmalion, the myth, uh, Pygmalion creates a statue of Aphrodite. So beautiful. Yeah. That it's bequeathed life. And so what does it do? What becomes his wife? It, when it is animated, it binds itself to him to give itself meaning because the moment that you become a conscious, I mean, we could debate whether, she's actually conscious or not, but in line with this line of reasoning, the moment you become conscious, you don't have freedom from all things. You have the freedom because that would leave you in despair, right? Like sort of 2001 out space odyssey out, out in, you know, space with no one around you with nothing to do, which would be far more like hell, I would say, which does seem to be the initial states of consciousness as Dante would even agree with uh, And also Milton, of course, Mm -hmm. but that, what you are free to do is to choose one of the paths that exist and make it yours. Yes. Right. Yes. Very good. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. That's Mr. Babcock. That is an excellent, that's an excellent place to get to. I have to say. Yeah. I, I feel, feel good about this. Now question going forward. Uh, okay. I, you know, I don't want to open up a big, big, just to think about is, uh, yes. uh, is there a way in which Dolores, Maeve and maybe a third figure, maybe a Bernard, are the Hindu 
God, Shiva, the destroyer, Krishna, the creator, and Brahma, the, I don't know what they, I, I don't know enough about Hindu religion to speak about. Well, I, I would say that some, something I'm coming to through the Jungian thought I'm engaging with, as well as the Petersonian thought, uh, especially maps of meaning, is that there does seem to be a structure underlying all narrative, and that something that seems to be universal is chaos, yeah. order, yeah. They seem to be aspects of all things and that which mediates between yeah. chaos and order as logos or consciousness or the individual, because you can only be an individual insofar as you harness the logos, not an ideology or yeah. just pre-existing set of beliefs or facts. So I would say that they could probably be any set of three mm, yeah. archetypal figures. Well, like and, and in a way, Dolores, they, they both embody and are aiming at those chaos and order, right? It seems like Dolores wants order but she achieves it through chaos and Maeve wants chaos and she's achieving it through order i don't know i don't know uh, that's interesting no, yeah watch. that'll be we'll, we'll think about that we'll think yeah. about that yeah no that's a, i mean that's just that's a, that's amazing that your logos your consciousness immediately gets to work on that like a spider spinning a web <laughs> um, but the, i mean this has been a fantastic web that we have we ha we have spun and well i mean i'm left wanting more mr babcock but i suppose also our listeners are probably going to be wanting more as well and just one note to the listeners please do listen in please share our stuff please like this station and also feel free to call in if you've downloaded the anchor app and you have listened in and you think we're wrong about everything call us up and tell us we'll put your your one minute segment uh you can have as many as you want but uh the questions are limited to one minute at a time though i've i've asked a question on my friend wes's bookworm games is uh, anchor that was five one-minute questions <laughs> then he then posted and you can hear me getting I'm sort of under the weather when I'm asking you can hear me getting sicker and sicker I'm I'm getting more sniffly and coffee as the night as the night goes on as I'm listening to his podcast and asking him questions but he posted those questions on on the very next podcast and then responded to him and well we could do that too oh, um, and yeah I think taking uh, listener questions would be yeah I mean what else are we gonna do we love that oh yeah so, and so, you know, as our listening base continues to grow, please do, you know, get us while we're hot. Get get us while we're fresh and new and can answer everything and, you know, berate us when we're wrong because, well, we're willing to be wrong because apparently mistakes bring about consciousness and so does suffering. And so we're willing to suffer some for this, I think. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> Mr. Babcock, again, a true pleasure. And uh, I do feel like this is the best work we've done so far. Yeah, I think it's been great. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, until next time, this has been the Alexander Schmidt Podcast, Episode 54, Westworld Season 2, Episode 5. Any closing thoughts, Mr. Babcock? No, just uh, thanks for having me, and I look forward to next week. All right. Well, looking forward, having some hope, not being are they, subject are they, to Is there going to be an episode on Sunday? Because it's Memorial Day. I don't know. We'll have to, um, we'll have to, we'll have to look into that. Maybe we All can right. do a midweek, maybe we can do a, uh, a midweek one-minute promo where we, we let the viewers know Good or idea. the listeners. Good idea. All right. All right. Well, until next time. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Goodbye.